few years ago, a writer named Wilfred McClay wrote an article called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And in the article, he talks about how thinkers like Nietzsche were so confident that the modern Western world, as, as it outgrew religion, that it would also outgrow the idea of sin and any feelings of guilt. And yet, that is not what has happened, right? In fact, I would say that we today in the modern West are as moral as any society ever, right? But I, the difference is, though, that we don't all agree on what is morality, what's good, what is bad, what is moral, and what is immoral, right? Some, some would say that morality is, is doing good things and sacrificing for others, Others would say, well, no, it's just not hurting anyone, right? Being true to yourself, doing what you want to do, just don't hurt anybody. For some, morality is simply tolerance. For others, it is actually being an ally for the marginalized. For others, it's, uh, it's making sacrifices and caring for the environment. And McClay talks about this array of moral viewpoints, which also brings out an array of different kinds of guilt, right? He says, colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. And the interesting thing is that sometimes if people don't live up to a certain morality in certain contexts, what happens? They get canceled. What's, what does that mean to get canceled? Well, it's to, to get shamed and then ignored, right? And in cancel culture, there's really no path to forgiveness, to restoration. Even if you are sorry for what you've done and you want to change, there's, no, there's only a cutting off and a leaving behind. Now, the real problem, as David Brooks writes, is that people have a sense of guilt and sin but no longer a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. There's sin, but no formula for redemption. In Hosea 6, God's people have realized that they are guilty of the things that God has been sort of confronting with them with for the first five chapters of Hosea. And they're sorry, sort of, right? But it's the kind of sorry that a child is when he gets caught hitting his brother, right? Say you're sorry, sorry. And then 15 minutes later, whack, right? Now we see in this chapter not only what weak repentance looks like but what also we get a hint of what true repentance looks like and how God's love does provide a way for forgiveness and restitution so if you are able please stand we're going to read most of uh, Hosea 6 again it's not that long but it begins there's really two voices in this chapter Okay, it begins, the first three verses begin with Israel speaking. And then in, chapter, in verse 4, God takes over and begins to speak back. So hear, hear the word of the Lord. Come, let us return to the Lord, 
For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us and on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Remorse is not the same thing as repentance. But it's often hard to tell the difference between the two, isn't it? Because repentance begins with true sorrow. And remorse can often look like true sorrow. In in verse 1 here, Israel seems to be very concerned, very sorrowful for their sins and the ways that God has confronted them with their sin. Look what they say. They say, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He struck us down, and he will bind us up. Now, that's actually a very theologically astute saying, isn't it? That God hurts us in order to heal us, that he, he, he knocks us down in order to build us up. I sort of think a very classic illustration of this is in The Voyage of the Don Treader, another C.S. Lewis book, where Eustace uh, becomes, the young boy becomes a dragon after falling asleep on a hoard of stolen treasure and having these greedy dreams, he becomes, he turns into a dragon right? And after just a little while, he wants to become a boy again. And so he sees Aslan, the lion, and Aslan tells him, uh, in, order, basically, in order to become a boy again, you must undress. And Eustace realizes, oh, you know, as a, as a dragon, I have scales, and so I got to take those scales off. And so he starts clawing at the scales and taking off a layer of them, Right? And then there's a pool there, and he begins to go, to, to go down into the pool. But as he, he looks into the pool, he sees his reflection, and he's still a dragon. He says, oh, there must be another, another layer of scales. So he gets to work taking off that, that layer of skin. And he goes to get down in the pool again, and he sees him still a dragon. So he tries it one more time. Another layer. Doesn't work. Finally, Aslan says, you must let me undress you. And so Eustace lays down, and, and Aslan, the lion with his sharp claws, begins to tear very deeply into Eustace. So deep, he feels like he's tearing his heart out. But this time, the scales come off much thicker, and when 
Eustace goes down into the water and he comes back out a boy again. God tears us in order to heal us. And he's like a surgeon, right? Using a scalpel to do surgery. And he usually goes much deeper into our sin and into our guilt and we really are comfortable with him doing, isn't that? And verse 5, we see how God confronts us with our sin. He says, I have hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. The Bible is God's main instrument to pierce us. Right? In the New Testament, it's called the sword of the Spirit. And when we read it, we, if we read it with spiritual eyes, we realize how good God is and how far from good that we are. And when we let down our defenses to receive this bad news, it, it can be painful, right? It can be painful. Because not, none of us wants to think we're as bad as we are. Oh, you know, nobody's perfect, but how bad are we? I've read a little bit about the Nuremberg Trials, which uh, there were trials that took place in Germany after World War II where some of the most notorious Nazi leaders were on trial for the crimes they, they committed. And, and as you read about the trials, you find just a stunning refusal by these men who had committed genocide, right? Had done these horrible human experiments. But just this refusal by them to really admit their guilt, right? They were just, just following orders, just doing their duty. There's kind of a similar resistance going on in Hosea 6. Right? Remember, in chapter 4, God had presented this whole list of crimes that Israel committed as a sort of court case. And he continues that here further on in chapter 6, right? Gilead is a city of evildoers. Gilead is supposed to be a place of peace and rest. No, it's a city of evildoers tracked with blood, robbers, Lie in wait for a man. The priests even get together and kill people. And Israel responds seeming like a credible confession. Oh, let's return to the Lord, right? And he'll forgive us. But if you look closely, what's, what's really missing in these first three verses? What's missing is really any tangible acknowledgement of sin, and any real desire to change. They see, they see the results of God's judgment. They even talk about returning to the Lord, but they completely presume upon God's good grace, right? He'll come to us as the showers, they say. <laughs> you know, it's bound to rain. God is bound to forgive us. Reminds me of what, what the philosopher once said about God, right? Forgiveness, that's his job. Got to do it. Truly repentant person begins with deep sorrow, but then repentance proceeds with turning away from the sin. Right? Verse, and verse 4 really is God's response to Israel's weak sorrow. It's this great metaphor. He says, What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. You know, think about that. Dew only stays on the grass for a few hours, and then it disappears. And that's, that's Israel. That's their repentance. 
They're, they're kind of like, in the context of Hosea, right, like the cheating spouse who gets caught and is, is crying and is super repentant. But then the next day goes back to their behavior, goes back to the affair. I remember counseling a husband and a wife, and uh, he had just spent a bunch of their money very frivolously. And, uh, and she was understandably, I mean, kind of devastated that he had done this, uh, betrayed her like that, that their finances were now in ruin, kind of wondering if this was going to be a pattern, what was going to happen in the future, sort of working through all these questions that were uncomfortable. <laughs> and he want to know more of this, right? I said, I'm sorry. You need to forgive me. Listen, that is not the kind of person who wants to change. They just don't want the other person mad at them anymore, right? And because they don't want to change, they're probably going to do it again. Listen, this is how you know that someone is truly repentant and desirous of change. They don't demand to be forgiven. They let the offended party work through the hurt and anger. And they don't try to force reconciliation until the person is is really ready. Too often, though, we just want an easy sorry that relieves the pain, hopefully changes our circumstances. Listen, God can handle our sin, but he will not let us evade the responsibility of it. He wants us to own up to it and he wants us to stop doing it. The problem with Israel here is they, they just want God off their back, right? They want their guilt taken away, but they don't want to do the hard work of being restored to God and, and having to cut off the, false, the worship of false gods and all these practices that they've found themselves in that are offensive to God. This is where the story of Hosea's marriage really comes into play. Right? A marriage must have love and commitment. Right? Remember back in chapter 3, a couple weeks we looked at this, where Hosea buys Gomer back from slavery. And then he says this to her. He says, you must dwell with me many days and not belong to another man. I'll be the same to you. In other words, for this to work, you have to stop hurting me and stop hurting yourself. Repentance starts with this sorrow for sin, but then turns away from the sin, 180 degrees away from it. But then there's one more crucial step to complete the repentance, and that is that repentance ends with love and God. Right? Verse 6, God says something here, that Jesus would, would repeat hundreds of years later to the religious people of his day. What does he say? He says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, when you first hear this, if you know the Bible, this may not really make a lot of sense, right? Because he says what? I, I, want, I want love but not sacrifice, not burnt offerings. No, we're still in the Old Testament here, right? When you read the Old Testament law and you read about all the sacrifices that are commanded, who is commanding those sacrifices? It's God, right? 
It's God who, who wants the people. When, when you sin, come and bring an animal as an atonement for your sin. Now he's saying, I, I don't desire sacrifice? Which is it? What's going on here? I think what's going on here is that God is not objecting to the sacrificial system per se. He's objecting to the way that Israel is doing it, right? Because they've made a game of this. They've basically said, listen, you can do whatever you want as long as you bring a, a, you know, a lamb or a bird or an ox and make atonement for it, right? You can do whatever you want. Their sacrifices are worthless because they're not accompanied by relationship. There is no love in their hearts. So it's not true repentance. Now the problem with our repentance is not is that it's not just enough to say no to sin. We also have to be able to say yes to something greater. Jesus tells this really kind of weird parable in Matthew 12. He says, when a demon leaves a person, that it sometimes returns to that person. And he says that, that when, if he, this demon finds the person's inner home, his heart, swept out and empty, he'll go and get seven other demons and return. And it'll be worse for the person than before. What? What is that story about? I think it's really about incomplete healing, incomplete repentance and restoration. He says it's, it's not enough to just get rid of the demons to turn away from your sin. You also have to fill up your heart with something better, right? Not just sweep it clean, but fill it up with something better. And what is that? Neil Williams says, you know, if change were easy, there wouldn't be much wrong with us, right? Nothing that a few exhortations couldn't cure, right? Shape up, get it together. But in reality, however, our hearts love a thousand mistresses. At the center of our being, we love the cheap substitutes and we'll only give them up as we personally taste and experience God's love for us. We will not repent unless we know we are loved. Verse 2 I think gives us a hint of what that love looks like. Israel says, after two days, God will revive us. On the third day, he'll raise us up that we may live before him. Again, this this verse is part of Israel's attempt at repentance. And it could mean just that God's forgiveness is coming soon, right? Talking about uh, on the third day is sort of a way of talking about it's coming. It's coming soon, right? But Hosea being a prophet and all, it could also be a prophetic hint of the future. In fact, it's interesting, in in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. Now, of course, the Scriptures he was talking about would have been in the Old Testament. And there's really only two texts in the Old Testament that really talk about someone being raised on the third day. Maybe three if you include Genesis 22. But the first one is Jonah when he leaves the belly of the whale after the third day. Jesus says this is the sign of Jonah, right? But the other text is right here. 
Israel says, after two days he'll revive us, on the third day he'll raise us up that we may live before him. I think even though they didn't know what they were saying, that the people are right, that on the third day God raised us up to live before him. He buried our sins. When Jesus rose from the grave, he buried our sins and that we who are united to him by faith are also raised up and given eternal life with him. See, your repentance can't be about improving your old life. It has to be about your new life in Christ. Andrew Peterson has this great song. Uh, He sang a number of years ago. It's called After the Last Tear Falls. He says, after the last tear falls, after the last secret's told, after the last bullet tears through flesh and bone, after the last child stars and the last girl walks the boulevard, after the last year that's just too hard, there is love. After the last plan fails, after the last siren wails, after the last young husband sails off to join the war, after the last this marriage is over, after the last young girl's innocence is stolen, there is love. And in the end, the end is oceans and oceans of love and love again. We'll see how the tears that have fallen were caught in the palms of the giver of love and the lover of all, and we'll look back on these tears as old tales love that line that in the end after the tears fall in the end is oceans and oceans of love and love again right the tears do have to fall but if you end up your battle with just with sin just in in self-hatred or or bitterness or sadness guess what you're doing it wrong Right? Repentance should end in the arms of Jesus, delighting in his love for you, overflowing in thankfulness. And do you know what happens then? Then you can also make appropriate restitution <laughs> joyfully. You can do it joyfully, not begrudgingly. That's, that's actually what we see with Zacchaeus, the crooked tax collector in, in Luke 19, right? When he meets Jesus, what happens? He, he, he acknowledges his guilt. He, he's convicted by Jesus and his words. He, he acknowledges it. He comes to Jesus in faith. And then what does he do? He changes his lifestyle, And for Zacchaeus, turning away from his former life of robbing people also meant that he had to make restitution. He does that, right? He pays the people he's cheated four times what he stole. He does it joyfully. After Zacchaeus had met Jesus, he didn't care about money anymore. He only cared about pleasing God and being happy in him. And really, that's where repentance ought to lead us into the arms of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we, when we were still lost in our sins, that Christ died for us. And that when you confront us with our sin, that you don't cancel us, 
But instead, through Jesus, you have canceled the written record against us. And you've given us eternal life. Lord, may that fill us with such joy that we become the chief repenters in our life. The chief repenters in our families and in our church and in our communities. That we would not be afraid to admit when we're wrong. But would see the eventual outcome of confession and repentance being restitution and oceans and oceans of love and love again. Father, truly you are a forgiving God and we are grateful for that. Thank you for that in Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.